Chapter 15 of Babbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter 15. His march to greatness was not without disastrous stumbling. Fame did not bring the social advancement which the Babbitts deserved. They were not asked to join the Tonawanda Country Club, nor invited to the dances at the Union. Himself, Babbitt fretted. He didn't care a fat hoot for all those high rollers, but the wife would kind of like to be among those present. He nervously awaited his university class dinner and an evening of furious intimacy with such social leaders as Charles McKelvey, the millionaire contractor, Max Kruger, the banker, Irving Tate, the tool manufacturer, and Adelbert Dobson, the fashionable interior decorator. Theoretically, he was their friend as he had been in college, and when he encountered them they still called him Georgie, but he didn't seem to encounter them often, and he never invited them to dinner, with champagne and a butler at their houses on Royal Ridge. All the week before the class dinner he thought of them. No reason why they shouldn't become real chummy now. 2. Like all true American diversions and spiritual outpourings, the dinner of the men of the class of 1896 was thoroughly organized. The dinner committee hammered like a sales corporation. Once a week, they sent out reminders. Tickler number three. Old man, are you going to be with us at the liveliest friendship feed the alumni of the good old you have ever known? The alumni of 08 turned out 60% strong. Are we boys going to be beaten by a bunch of skirts? Come on, fellows, let's work up some real genuine enthusiasm and all boost together for the snappiest dinner yet. Elegant East, short ginger talks, and memory shared together of the brightest, gladdest days of life. The dinner was held in a private room at the Union Club. The club was a dingy building. Three pretentious old dwellings knocked together and the entrance hall resembled a potato cellar, yet the Babbitt, who was free of the magnificence of the athletic club, entered with embarrassment. He nodded to the doorman, an ancient, proud negro, with brass buttons and a blue tailcoat, and paraded through the hall, trying to look like a member. Sixty men had come to dinner. They made islands and eddies in the hall. They packed the elevator in the corners of the private dining-room. They tried to be intimate and enthusiastic. They appeared to one another exactly as they had in college, as raw youngsters whose present mustaches, baldness, paunches, and wrinkles were but jovial disguises put on for the evening. You haven't changed a particle, they marveled. The men whom they could not recall, they addressed, Well, well, great to see you again, old man. What are you, uh, still doing the same thing? Someone was always starting a cheer or a college song, and it was always thinning into silence. Despite their resolution to be democratic, they divided into two sets, the men with dress clothes and the men without. Babbitt, extremely in dress clothes, went from one group to the other. Though he was, almost frankly, out for social conquest, he sought Paul Risling first. He found him alone, neat and silent. Paul sighed. I'm no good at this handshaking. Well, look who's here, Bunk. Rats, now, Polybus, loosen up. Be a mixer. Finest bunch of boys on earth. Say, you seem kind of glum. What's the matter? Oh, the usual run-in with Zelia. Come on, 
Let's wade in and forget our troubles. He kept Paul beside him, but worked toward the spot where Charles McKelvey stood warming his admirers like a furnace. McKelvey had been the hero of the class of ninety-six, not only football captain and hammer-thrower, but debater, and passable in what the state university considered scholarship. He had gone on and captured the construction company once owned by the Dodsworths, best-known pioneer family of Zenith. He built state capitals, skyscrapers, railway terminals. He was a heavy-shouldered, big-chested man, but not sluggish. There was a quiet humor in his eyes, a sharp, smooth quickness in his speech, which intimidated politicians and warned reporters, and in his presence the most intelligent scientist or the most sensitive artist felt thin-blooded, unworldly, and a little shabby. He was particularly, when he was influencing legislators or hiring labor spies, very easy and lovable and gorgeous. He was baronial. He was a peer in the rapidly crystallizing American aristocracy, inferior only to the haughty old families in Zenith. An old family is one which came to town before 1840. His power was the greater because he was not hindered by scruples, by either the vice or the virtue of the older Puritan traditions. McKelvey was being placidly merry now with the great, the manufacturers and bankers, the landowners and lawyers and surgeons, who had chauffeurs and went to Europe. Babbitt squeezed among them. He liked McKelvey's smile as much as the social advancement to be had from his favor. If in Paul's company he felt ponderous and protective, with McKelvey he felt slight and adoring. He heard McKelvey say to Max Kruger the banker, Yes, we'll put up Sir Gerald Doak. Babbitt's democratic love for titles became a rich relish. You know, he's one of the biggest iron men in England, Max. Horribly well off. Why, hello, old Georgie. Say, Max, George Babbitt's getting fatter than I am. The chairman shouted, Take your seats, fellas. Shall we make a move, Charlie? Babbitt said casually to McEvely. Right. Hello, Paul. How's the old fiddler? Planning to sit anywhere special, George? Come on, let's grab some seats. Come on, Max, Georgie. I read about your speeches in the campaign. Bully work. After that, Babbitt would have followed him through fire. He was enormously busy during the dinner, now bumblingly cheering Paul, now approaching McKelvey. Here you're going to build some piers in Brooklyn. Now noting how enviously the failures of the class, sitting by themselves in a weedy group, looked up to him, in his association with the nobility now warming himself in the society talk of McKelvey and Max Kruger. They spoke of a jungle dance, for which Mona Dodsworth had decorated her house with thousands of orchids. They spoke with an excellent imitation of casualness of a dinner in Washington at which McKelvey had met a senator, a Balkan princess, and an English major-general. McKelvey called the princess Jenny and let it be known that he had danced with her. Babbitt was thrilled, but not so weighted with awe as to be silent. If he was not invited by them to dinner, he was yet accustomed to talking with bank presidents, congressmen, and clubwomen who entertained poets. He was bright and referential with McKelvey. Say, Charlie, do you remember in junior year how we chartered a sea-going hack and chased down to Riverdale to the big show Madame Brown used to put on? Remember how you beat up that hick constable that tried to run us in? and we pinched the pants-pressing sign and took and hung it on Prep Morrison's door. 
Oh, gosh, those were the days. Those, McKelvey agreed, were the days. Babbitt had reached. It isn't the books you study in college, but the friendship you make that counts. When the man at head of the table broke into song, he attacked McKelvey. It's a shame, a shame to drift apart because our uh, business activities lie in different fields. I've enjoyed talking over the good old days. You and Mrs. McKelvey must come to dinner some night. Vaguely? Yes, indeed. Like to talk to you about the growth of real estate out beyond your Grangeville warehouse. I might be able to tip you off to a thing or two, possibly. Splendid. We must have dinner, Georgie. Just let me know, and it will be a great pleasure to have your wife and you at the house, said McKevely, much less vaguely. Then the chairman's voice, that prestigious voice, which once had roused them to cheer defiance at rooters from Ohio or Michigan or Indiana, whooped, Come on, you wombats, all together in a long yell. Babbitt felt that life would never be sweeter than now. When he joined with Paul Reisling and the newly recovered hero, McKevely in, Battle axe, get an axe, backs, get an axe, who, who, the you, hooroo. Three. The Babbitts invited the McKevleys to dinner in early December, and the McKevleys not only accepted, but after changing the date once or twice, actually came. The Babbitts somewhat thoroughly discussed the details of the dinner, from the purchase of a bottle of champagne to the number of salted almonds to be placed before each person. Especially did they mention the matter of the other guests. To the last, Babbitt held out for giving Paul Reisling the benefit of being with the McKevleys. Good old Charlie would like Paul and Verge Gunch better than some highfalutin willy boy, he insisted, but Mrs. Babbitt interrupted his observation with, Yes, perhaps. I think I'll try to get some uh, Linnehaven oysters. And when she was quite ready, she invited Dr. J.T. Angus, the oculist, and a dismally respectable lawyer named Maxwell, with their glittering wives. Neither Agnes nor Maxwell belonged to the Elks or the Athletic Club. Neither of them had ever called Babbitt brother, or asked his opinions on carburetors, the only human people they invited, Babbitt raged, were the Littlefields, and Howard Littlefields at time became so statistical that Babbitt longed for the refreshment of Gunch's. Well, old lemon pie face, what the good word? Immediately after lunch, Mrs. Babbitt began to set the table for the 7.30 dinner to the McKibleys, and Babbitt was, by order, home at four. But they didn't find anything for him to do, and three times Mrs. Babbitt scolded. Do please try to keep out of the way. He stood in the door of the garage, his lips drooping, and wished that Littlefield or Sam Doppelow or somebody would come along and talk to him. He saw Ted sneaking round the corner of the house. What's the matter, old man? said Babbitt. Is that you, thin old one? Gee, Ma certainly is on the warpath. I told her Roe and I would just soon not be let in on the fiesta tonight, and she bit me. She says I got to take a bath, too, but, say, the Babbitt men will be some lookers tonight, little Theodore, in a dress suit. The Babbitt men. Babbitt liked the sound of it. He put his arm about the boy's shoulder. He wished that Paul Reisling had a daughter, so that Ted might marry her. 
"'Yes, your mother is kind of rouncing around, all right,' he said. And they laughed together and sighed together and dutifully went in to dress. The McEvleys were less than fifteen minutes late. Babbitt hoped that the Doppelraus would see the McEvleys' limousine and their uniform chauffeur waiting in front. The dinner was well-cooked and incredibly plentiful, and Mrs. Babbitt had brought out her grandmother's silver candlesticks. Babbitt worked hard. He was good. He told none of the jokes he wanted to tell. He listened to the others. He started Maxwell off with a resounding, Let's hear about your trip to Yellowstone. He was laudatory, extremely laudatory. He found opportunities to remark that Dr. Agnes was a benefactor to humanity. Maxwell and Howard Littlefield, profound scholars. Charles McEvely, an inspiration to ambitious youth, and Mrs. McEvely, an adornment to the social circles of Zenith, Washington, New York, Paris, and numbers of other places. But he could not stir them. It was a dinner without a soul, for no reason that was clear to Babbitt. Heaviness was over them, and they spoke laboriously and unwillingly. He concentrated on Lucille McEvely, carefully not looking at her blanched, lovely shoulder and the tawny silken beard which supported her frock. "'I suppose you'll be going to Europe pretty soon, won't you?' he invited. "'I'd like awfully to run over to Rome for a few weeks.' "'I suppose you see a lot of pictures and music and curios and everything there.' "'No, what I really go for is there's a little tartaria on the Villa della Scorpa, where you get the best fettuccine in the world.' "'Oh, yes, that must be nice to try that, yes.' At a quarter to ten, McKelvey discovered with profound regret that his wife had a headache. He said blithely, as Babbitt helped him with his coat, we must lunch together sometime and talk over the old days. When the others had labored out at half-past ten, Babbitt turned to his wife, pleading, Charlie said he had a corking good time and we must lunch. Said they wanted to have us up to their house for dinner before long. She achieved, Oh, it's been one of those quiet evenings that are often so much more enjoyable than noisy parties, where everybody talks at once and doesn't really settle down to nice quiet enjoyment. But from the cot on the sleeping porch, he heard her weeping slowly, without hope. 4. For a month they watched the social columns and waited for a return dinner invitation. As the hosts of Sir Gerald Doak, the McEvleys were headlined all the week after the Babbitt's dinner. Zenith ardently received Sir Gerald, who had come to America to buy coal. The newspapers interviewed him on Prohibition, Ireland Unemployment, Naval Aviation, the rate of exchange, tea-drinking versus whiskey-drinking, and psychology of American women and daily life as lived by English country families. Sir Gerald seemed to have heard of all these topics. The McEvleys gave him a Singalese dinner, and Miss Eleonora Pearl Bates, society editor for the Advocate Times, rose to her highest lark note. Babbitt read aloud at breakfast-table. Twixt the original and oriental decorations, the strange and delicious food, and the personalities both of the distinguished guest and the charming hostess, and the noted host, never has Zenith seen a more recherche affair than the Cylon dinner-dance given last evening by Mr. and Mrs. Charles McEvely to Sir Gerald Doak. Methought, as we fortunate one, were privileged to view that fairy and foreign scene, nothing at Monte Carlo or the choicest ambassadorial sets 
of foreign capitals could be more lovely. It is not for nothing that Zenith is in matters social rapidly becoming known as the choosiest inland city in the country. Though he is too modest to admit it, Lord Doak gives a cachet to our smart quarter such as it has not received since the ever-memorable visit of the Earl of Sittingbourne. Not only is he the British peerage, but he is also, on it, a leader of the British metal industries. As he comes from Nottingham, a favorite haunt of Robin Hood, though now we are informed by Lord Doak, a live modern city of 275,573 inhabitants, and important lace as well as other industries. We like to think that perhaps, through his veins, runs some of the blood, both virile red and boomy blue, of the earlier lord of the good a greenwood, the roguish Robin. The lovely Mrs. McEverly never was more fascinating than last evening, in her black net gown, relieved by dainty bands of silver, and at her exquisite waist a glowing cluster of Aaron Ward roses. Babbitt said bravely, Hope they don't invite us to meet this Lord Doak guy. Darn sight rather just have a nice quiet little dinner with Charlie and the missus. At the Zenith Athletic Club they discussed it amply. I suppose we'll have to call McKibley Lord Chaz from now on, said Sidney Finkelstein. It beats all get out, meditated that man of data, Howard Littlefield. How hard it is for some people to get things straight. Here they call this fellow Lord Doak when it ought to be Sir Gerald. Babbitt marveled. Is that a fact? Well, well, Sir Gerald, eh? That's what you call him, huh? Well, sir, I'm glad to know that. Later, he informed his salesman. It's funner'n a goat the way some folks that just uh, because they happen to uh, lay up a big wad go entertaining famous foreigners. Don't have any more idea than a rabbit how to address em, so to make em feel at home. That evening, as he was driving home, he passed McKelvey's limousine and saw Sir Gerald, a large, ruddy, pop-eyed, Teutonic Englishman, whose dribble of yellow mustache gave him an aspect sad and doubtful. Babbitt drove on slowly, oppressed by futility. He had a sudden, unexplained, and horrible conviction that the McKelveys were laughing at him. He betrayed his depression by the violence with which he informed his wife. Folks that really tend to business haven't got the time to waste on a bunch like the McKevleys. This society stuff is like any other hobby. If you devote yourself to it, you get in. But I like to have a chance to visit with you and the children instead of all this idiotic chasing around. They did not speak of the McKevleys again. 5. It was a shame at this worried time to have to think about the Overbrooks. Ed Overbrook was a classmate of Babbitt, who had been a failure. He had a large family and a feeble insurance business out in the suburb of Dorchester. He was gray and thin and unimportant. He had always been gray and thin and unimportant. He was a person whom, in any group, he forgot to introduce, then introduced with extra enthusiasm. He had admired Babbitt's good fellowship in college, had admired ever since his power in real estate, his beautiful house and wonderful clothes. It pleased Babbitt, though it bothered him, with a sense of responsibility. At the class dinner he had seen poor Overbrook, in a shiny blue serge business suit, 
being diffident in a corner with three other failures. He had gone over and been cordial. "'Why, hello, young Edward. I hear you're writing the all-insurance in Dorchester now. Bully work.' They recalled the good old days, when Overbrook used to write poetry. Overbrook embarrassed him by blurting, "'Say, George, I, I hate to think of how we've been drifting apart. I wish you and Mrs. Babbitt would come to dinner some night.' Babbitt boomed. "'Fine, sure. Just let me know. And the wife and I want to have you at our house.' He forgot it, but unfortunately Ed Overbrook did not. Repeatedly he telephoned to Babbitt, inviting him to dinner. Might well go and get it over, Babbitt groaned to his wife. But don't it simply amaze you the way the poor fish doesn't know the first thing about social etiquette? Think of him phoning me instead of his wife, sitting down and writing us a regular bid. Well, I guess we're stuck with it. That's the trouble with all this class brother hoopadoodle. He accepted Overbrook's next plaintive invitation for an evening two weeks off. A dinner two weeks off. Even a family dinner never seems so appalling till the two weeks have astoundedly disappeared, and one comes dismayed to the ambushed hour. They had to change the date because of their own dinner to the McKevleys, but at last they gloomily drove out to the Overbrook's house in Dorchester. It was miserable from the beginning. The Overbrook's had dinner at six-thirty, while the Babbitts never dined before seven. Babbitt permitted himself to be ten minutes late. Let's make it as short as possible. I think we'll duck out quick. I'll say I have to be in the office early tomorrow, he planned. The Overbrook house was depressing. It was the second story of a wooden two-family dwelling, a place of baby carriages, old hats hung in the hall, cabbage smell, and a family Bible on the parlor table. Ed Overbrook and his wife were as awkward and as threadbare as usual, and the other guests were two dreadful families whose names Babbitt never caught and never desired to catch. But he was touched and disconcerted by the tactless way in which Overbrook praised him. We're mighty proud to have old George here tonight. Of course, you've all read about his speeches and oratory in the papers, and the boy's good-looking, too, eh? But what I always think of is back in college, and what a great old mixer he was, and one of the best swimmers in the class. Babbitt tried to be jovial. He worked at it, but he could find nothing to interest him in Overbrook's timorous. The blankness of the other guests or the drained stupidity of Mrs. Overbrook, with her spectacles, drab skin, and tight-drawn hair. He told his best Irish story, and it sank like soggy cake. Most blurring moment of all was when Miss Overbrook, peering out of her fog of nursing eight children and cooking and scrubbing, tried to be conversational. "'I suppose you go to Chicago and New York right along, Mr. Babbitt,' she prodded. "'Well, I get to Chicago fairly often.' "'Must be awfully interesting. I suppose you take in all the theaters.' "'Well, tell you the truth, Mrs. Overbrook, thing that hits me best is a great big beefsteak at Dutch restaurant in the loop.' They had nothing more to say. Babbitt was sorry, but there was no hope. The dinner was a failure. At ten, Rousing out of the stupor of meaningless talk, he said as cheerily as he could, "'Fraid we gotta be startin', Ed. I got a fellow comin' in to see me early tomorrow.' As Overbrook helped him with his coat, Babbitt said, "'Nice to rub up on the old days. We must have lunch together, P.D.Q.' 
Mrs. Babbitt sighed on their drive home. It was pretty terrible how Mr. Overbrook does admire you. Yep, poor cuss seems to think I'm a little tin archangel and the best-looking man in Zenith. Well, you're certainly not that. But, oh, Georgie, don't suppose we have to invite them to dinner to our house now, do we? Well, I hope not. See here now, George, you didn't say anything about it to Mr. Overbrook, did you? No, oh, gee, no, honest, I didn't. Just made a bluff about having him to lunch sometime. Well, oh dear, I don't want to hurt their feelings, but I don't see how I could stand another evening like this one. And suppose somebody like Dr. and Mrs. Angus came in when we had the Overbrooks there, and thought they were friends of ours? For a week they worried. We really ought to invite Ed and his wife, poor devils. But as they never saw the Overbrooks, they forgot them, and... A month or two, they said, well, it really was the best way just to let it slide. It wouldn't be kind to them to have them here. They'd feel so out of place and hard up in our house. They did not speak of the Overbrooks again. End of chapter 15